Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, August 14, 2012. This is episode 959 of the Survival Podcast. I got a great one for you today. I squeezed this interview in uh, because of the timely nature of it. I did a show uh, about a week ago about my good friend Rob Gray from the AOCS. Uh, he's the executive director of the American Open Currency Standard. I'm going to Washington, D.C. to testify in front of Congress. I read his speech in full as he intended it. And uh, today you're actually going to hear it as it was read. It had to be pared down to about six minutes. I'm going to play that for you before I introduce Rob. And then we're going to have a discussion, kind of an after-action review of what he learned in Washington, of, of what the experience was like, and his thoughts on things like the legal tender law, and why he has a different opinion than I think a lot of people in the liberty movement do. And I think he, he'll give you a pretty persuasive argument on that one uh, in particular. And I'll have him on in just a moment. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. Whether you're a master bladesmith or you've never made a knife before in your life and you want to make knives, KnifeKits.com is a place to go. You can get exotic materials, really high-end Damascus steel, tool steel, uh, you name it, you can find it there. Or you can get exotic handle materials like mammoth tusk or buffalo horn. You name it, you can find it. But if you like to say, I don't really need all that yet because I'm probably going to mess the first one up a little bit. I kind of need like a kit to get started with and I just want to do the handles and the bolsters and all and you know pick my own colors and make it unique and, and to me, you can do that too. You can get to something that's basically like a snap-together kit. Like when you were a kid, you did your first models and you didn't even use glue. Well, maybe somewhere between a glue-together and a snap-together kit. You can get a book or a DVD that tells you what to do. If you're not sure what you need, give them a call. They'll help you out. Or if you're just you're just a badass knife maker making custom knives, they have everything you could ever think of. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Remember, MSB members, you guys do get a discount. You'll find it in your benefits section. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. From Magpaul Magazines to Max Position Bags and everything in between, uh, you will find it at Sawtooth Tactical, including the sole source of the awesome tactical titanium spork. Check that thing out. The great thing about uh, Sawtooth Tactical, though, is it's veteran-owned and veteran-operated, and that means you're going to get absolute awesome service while supporting a veteran who served his country uh, and did that uh, for all of us. So check them out today, SawtoothTactical.com. They also do a discount for the Member Support Brigade. You'll find details on that in the MSB if you are a member. Next up today, remember to check out TSPCopper.com. Really cool stuff. I won't say much more about that because I think Rob gives me a little plug at the end of today's interview. Uh, but do check it out, TSPCopper.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you'll do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And for an even better deal, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, or a first responder like, let's say, a paramedic, active duty, or prior service, I will give you a service discount to thank you for service to your community and to your country. Just send me an email with service discount in the subject line and tell me who you are and what you did or who you are and what you're doing. And I will uh, send you a discount code that applies to all membership terms and applies to your recurring billing as well uh, to thank you for your support. And, again, guys, 
if you really like the show and you've been thinking about the Members Brigade, it's a great deal. It pays for itself. Uh, I'm working hard to, to, to increase the value on it. Uh, every year it's gotten better, and I'll keep doing that, and I've kept the price exactly where it is. All right, with that all wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, get into today's show. Before I introduce Rob, the first thing I'd like to do is actually play uh, the part of his speech where he actually uh, was just given free reign and given his time and allowed to present. Then I'll bring him on, and we'll talk about that and everything else that went on at our nation's capital. I thank the gentleman, and now we'll go to Mr. Gray. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. My name is Rob Gray, and I was asked to testify today on the theory of competing currencies and the practical challenges that make such a theory difficult or impossible to implement. <clears throat> for nearly five years now, I've successfully directed the American Open Currency Standard, the standard for private voluntary silver, copper, and gold currencies that compete against each other, not against the U.S. dollar. Allow me to clarify, we do not consider AOCS-approved medallions produced and traded in our private barter marketplace competition at all to the U.S. Federal Reserve note, because fair competition, as one would find in the free market, assumes the existence of a level playing field, existence of a standard set of rules. Those players who wish to compete honestly do so by simply relying on the merit of the value that they bring to the market. Well, no fair challenge can be made between honest men and thieves. And let me be clear when I say thieves. I refer directly to the current private central bank and the men in government who allow it to exist. Brings us to a critical point. According to your employee handbook, Article 1, Section 8 says that Congress shall have the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof. And I would argue that since 1913, Congress has failed to do the job with which it has been tasked. In the free market since our inception, the open currency standard has enjoyed nearly five years of growth and success and our mission of issuing a means that allows valuable exchanges among men who produce. In the next five years, we expect to expand our offerings and to increase our ability to keep up with the demand for our private currency. We are doing the job today that Congress would not. But back to theory. The use of community currencies here in the U.S. became popular back in the early 1930s. You see, at the time, the theory was that a group of the world's most powerful men were intentionally and systematically removing currency from circulation, creating artificial scarcity of money across the country. Small cities and towns felt it worse than anyone, but life did go on. Then, during the greatest economic depression the country had ever seen, individuals across the country developed their own mediums of exchange. They still needed things like food, clothing, daily essentials. They still needed to live, and they didn't have time to sit around and wait for the government to fix the problem. And so, according to historical records, thousands of community currencies were created circulated and traded in places where the scarcity of dollars was interfering with humans' desire to live. Individuals took it upon themselves back then to, to secure the means for their own survival and potential prosperity. More recently, community currencies have sprung up across Europe as the euro and other national currencies become increasingly unavailable and undependable. Today, communities all across the eurozone trade their own money instead of the euro. Community currencies today are not simply a good idea in theory. Right now, alternative and complementary currencies circulate widely across the country. Right now, in many different forms. Ithaca, New York has uh, Ithaca hours that are loosely based on the value of time. Berkshire, Massachusetts uses a fiat-backed fiat system. Uh, and many more communities circulate gold, silver, copper, AOCS-approved barter tokens as a medium of exchange. As for the practical challenges in the issuance and circulation of complementary currencies, there are plenty. In a voluntary system, those that participate in the trading of private currencies must deal with the possibility of counterfeiting, fraud, scarcity, acceptance, accounting, storage, and other issues, 
all without the luxury of Big Brother holding a gun to anyone's head to ensure their success. But even with all these risks, the market still moves on. As in any free market, good ideas circulate with success, and bad ones eventually fade away. Participants voluntarily choose to accept and circulate the highest quality currencies in exchange for their best production. Merchants accept complementary currencies based on the premise that someone else is willing to do the same thing later. Issues arise and are worked out by the market with only one light to guide them, the mutual exchange of value. No guns, no laws, no force, just the willingness to think outside the box and act on principle. Complementary currencies are not new in theory or in practice. Private currencies circulated long before governments erected themselves to interfere. What's new, however, is the public's apathy towards the government, the Federal Reserve, and their policies. You've managed somehow for the last hundred years to convince the citizens of this country that you're relevant. But now, just recently, we're beginning to see the tides change on this, and once it catches on, you'll be rendered completely obsolete. The greatest hurdle you'll face over the next hundred years is trying to convince we the people that you're still necessary in spite of their failures, failures to get the job done. Sure, some will rely on you for handouts. It's what they've always known their entire lives, and they'll be slaves right up to the point of their own destruction. But they don't know any better, and I don't blame them for their ignorance. In the future, you'll not have to worry about million-man marches or citizen journalists trying to catch you on camera. What you need to fear is no one paying attention to you. The next American Revolution will be fought with bullet, not with bullets and bombs, but instead it will be won with the opposite consciousness. To that end, I'm here today to propose a solution. My understanding of this committee is that you want to be part of the solution. You want to believe that you're doing something good for the country. And so today, the greatest gift that you can offer to the people that you clearly represent, not to the legislature, but directly to the public, is what I call IR-1207, Individual Resolution 1207, commonly referred to as Ignore the Fed. Store your wealth in silver. Bank with non-fractional banks that pay real money on deposits. Use the card service network to satisfy dollar obligations. Do not try to compete with the Federal Reserve System. Simply ignore them. I ask you to leave the Fed their Federal Reserve notes and leave us our gold, silver, and copper. Do not push to redefine whatever representations we choose for our wealth. Let the Fed do what it wants with their legal tenor so long as they leave our money alone. I warn you, honest money legislation is a wolf in sheep's clothing. The greatest thing this body can do is exactly what it's done so far. Absolutely nothing. All I ask is that you stay out of the market's way. The people in our world are very happy to go right along saving you from your own destruction by producing value against all odds, regulations, codes, and challenges that you throw our way. But leave our money alone. It doesn't belong to you, and it never will. The bottom line is very simple. Humanity is not going to wait for permission to survive. Things that cannot go on forever simply won't. The market will move on with or without you. And based on your rate of success to date, our preference is certainly without you. Thank you for the time. All right, folks, and with that, let me uh, welcome back for, I believe, the fourth time on uh, the Survival Podcast, uh, my good friend and executive director of the American Open Currency uh, Standard, Rob Gray. Hey, Rob, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Good afternoon, Jack. Thanks a lot for having me back here. Well, I wanted to start out, Rob, with uh, your recent experience. We had AOCS goes to Washington. What was it? Uh, what, let's start out with, uh, you know, how did you end up being summoned by Congressman Paul to go up there in the first place? That's that's the most confusing part for me in this whole adventure because I, I've been around for a number of years with the whole 
Ron Paul thing. We were, I was very active back in 2007, 2008 with campaigning and getting involved. And Ron Paul and I have bumped into each other at a number of different fundraisers and events. So uh, his wife buys silver from us. So, so we know who he is. He knows who, who we are. But uh, there's, there's never been any communication or dialogue between our two groups. We've created did medallions for Campaign for Liberty. So we've done a lot of stuff together. But from very early on, uh, in adventure that is the AOCS, I came out uh, being against the quote-unquote end-the-Fed movement. We've never created an end-the-Fed coin because it's not really our thing. We're, we're not for ending the Fed, and, and that's probably a very weird thing to say uh, uh, here as we begin, and I'll, I'm sure I'll get more into it in just the next few moments. But, uh, but real quick, if I could stop you there, you also wouldn't cry if, if somebody else ended the Fed. It's just no, not if, your agenda. If the Fed was to up and just uh, shut the doors one day, decided that it, whatever they were trying to do over the last hundred years didn't work and they were ready to move on, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Um, but I, I've always looked at the American Open Currency Standard as not being adversarial or, or controversial or competitive to the Federal Reserve. And that from my, my Liberty Dollar days. I, I got started with this thing as a Liberty Dollar uh, regional currency officer, and I was, I was very concerned from, from day one about the fact that they had this lawsuit that they filed against the Federal Reserve uh, and the U.S. Ministry, and uh, that they were making these tokens that kind of looked like U.S. coin. And you know, I said, you know, if we if we try to fight these guys, they're going to win. They got all the money. They got an unlimited budget to come after us and bury us. And if if our position is going to be to try to fight, you know, David and Goliath style, they're they've got a lot of force behind them, and and that's not a fight we we really want to take on. And so, um, early in 2009, I gave a speech up in Philadelphia at uh, at an end the Fed event up there, and. Uh, the, the point was very simple. I, I like what you guys are doing. Somebody's got to be out there, you know, keeping an eye on the Federal Reserve and letting them know that what they're doing is, is not right. But I'm not on your team. I'm, uh, I'm really more of an ignore the Fed guy. And I read him a quote. I said, if you find a chance to vanish into some wilderness out of their reach, do so, but not to exist as a bandit or to create a gang competing with their racket. Build a productive life of your own, those who accept your moral code and are willing to struggle for a human existence. Raise a standard of which the honest people will repair the standard of life and reason. And that's actually out of Atlas Shrugged, if you're familiar with that book. Uh, but the point is, we're, we're not here to compete. We're just here to do our own thing and to, and to create an honest and accountable monetary system that's based off of something that's been tested for thousands of years gold, silver, and copper. Uh, and so it, it was a real shock when I got the email from Ron Paul's policy director saying, we want you to come up and speak about this for the House Financial Services Domestic Monetary Policy Subcommittee hearing. And I'm like, really? Are they sure they know what they're do, – do they know who I am? Do they know that I'm not really a, like a pro-government solution kind of guy? And I turned to my associate, uh, Gus Demos, our sales director, and I said, I think we should turn this request down. And he's like, "What are you talking about? This is huge for exposure. This is great. You know, this will this will really uh, help to solidify our positions out there." I'm like, "I don't know, man. I'm like, what could we possibly want from the government that uh, that we can't just do for ourselves?" Um, and ultimately, we decided to to take on the the challenge and the invitation to go up to, to D.C. But before we went, I, I put a call out to this woman who sent the email from Ron Paul's office, and I said, "You know." I just want to make sure that you guys know who I am, what we're doing, because I don't really agree with Ron Paul's 
audit the Fed and the Fed position. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's doing it, but I think that the free market can uh, can do exactly what we're doing right now and be left alone and, and not run into any kind of legal trouble. We've been doing this for almost five years now, and it's been going fine. Uh, and she said, well, listen, just so you know, Ron Paul is right there with you. I mean, he, he agrees completely with what your position is, so on and so forth. And I said, all right. I said, if that's the case, then, then I'll come up to D.C. and I'll... I'll give you my opinion on the whole thing. So that's kind of that's kind of how the whole thing started. Now, do you still believe that? Do you think Ron Paul really shares your opinion? Because watching the entire hearing, I I didn't get that feeling. <laughs> well, I I spoke to the policy director and I said, is it possible to get a couple minutes of FaceTime with Dr. Paul before the hearing, just so we can make sure that this is okay? And she said, yeah, no problem. So the the hearing was scheduled for not this past Thursday, but the one before that, um, depending on who's listening to this and when. I guess that's all very subjective. But uh, the day before the hearing, we went in there, and uh, and I, we sat down in you know, Ron Paul's private office. You know, All the artifacts are there, the little sign on the desk that says, don't steal, the government hates competition. You know, right there in, in private, you know, cameras off no recording devices and we had a chance to sit down and say you know hey we uh we're concerned we put together this really great speech every word was was carefully selected to get our point across uh and to really let the committee know how we feel <clears throat> and it's like 13 minutes long we've only got five minutes to do it can we have a couple extra minutes well you can have maybe five and a half six minutes after that we start you know uh sounding the bell to let you know your time's up i said okay i said well when i walk out of this room today the one thing that I really want to accomplish is I want to know that I'm saying the words to this committee that you may not be able to say. You're a, you're a congressman. You've got a son that's a senator. Who knows where the political career is going to go over time. But I really just want to know that I'm going in there and I'm going to say this to Congress. And I'm not saying it to you, um, but I want to know that we're kind of on the same page here. You know what his response was? What? Thanks a lot for coming out. Hope you uh, travel safe and uh, enjoy your time here tomorrow. Very political answer. Very political answer. I mean, didn't even acknowledge the question. Just completely blown off. And I'm like, oh, this is so confusing. I mean, gosh, I I thought that this guy was reaching out to us to come in and do this thing and and just completely shot down on that. So I was a little bummed out when I left his office. And we went in there the next day. And, you know, still, he, he knew what was in the uh, the testimony. He knew exactly what we were going to say. And uh, he never stopped us, never tried to stop us. So I'm like, <clears throat> I'm just completely confused. Why would I get this invitation from a guy that has never reached out to us before <clears throat> to come in there and say what we were going to say without any kind of stipulations or, or limitations on what we could deliver and then not have him give me the, like a wink or a nudge or a smile or something and say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let mm-hmm. You know, give him hell, that kind of thing. I didn't get it. And so it's just such a contradiction in my mind about what's really going on here. <clears throat> so it was very confusing. I, uh, I agree with you. If, you've, if you watch the full video, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of uh, agreement coming from Ron Paul with anything that I had to say. So very, <laughs> very confusing. Which is fine. It just conflicts with what you were told. Um now, you did get something that I think might even be better, though. You basically made a freaking congressman act like a child and stamp away like somebody <laughs> peeing his Wheaties. Uh, you had a line in there that I, I, when I read your speech the night before when you sent me a copy of it, I, I had a feeling when I read it, by the way, that you weren't going to be able to do the entire thing. It was like, this is too long. Uh, but I'm like, God, I hope this line doesn't come out. And you had a line that was honest 
honest competition cannot exist among, uh, between honest men and thieves or something to that effect. And right. t- t- tell everybody what happened when you said that. I said, let me be clear when I say thieves. I refer to the existing private central bank and the men in government who allow it to exist. <clears throat> and if you, if you notice my eyes when I say that, I look directly to my left. And the congressman who joined us 10 minutes late is Congressman Al Green, and he's sitting on the far left side of the, uh, the panel. And so I'm looking directly at him when I say this, and as soon as I say it, man, he pops right up out of his chair. He, he kind of like is nodding off there and shows up 10 minutes late, falls kind of asleep, and then hears thieves, and he's right up out of his chair, and he is out the door just as quickly as he came in. <laughs> so he heard a little bit of it. I don't know how much he actually took away from it, but he heard enough to know that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, so, <laughs> You know, here's the thing to me. When somebody re- gets like that visceral of a reaction just to a testimony, um, the, the only reason I see for that is it hits home. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like if, if you didn't really believe there was any truth to it, it would bug you that much. Right? You'd just be like, yeah, this is another one of these freaking Liberty whack job guys, you know? But it seemed to me to get that visceral of a reaction that, like, you kind of hit them in the uh, cojones a little bit. (laughs) And uh, it made my day when I read that on Facebook. It was like the best moment of the hearing. Uh, I say thieves, and Congressman Green walks out. He gets up and just goes. He was was out the door. (laughs) The the, the other funny part about it is that uh, the policy director, when we sat down with her on Wednesday, uh, the day before, she said, you know, just – don't be mean to these guys. These guys are all our friends. They they like us, you know. They're uh, they're really sympathetic to the the things that we're trying to accomplish. And so when you're t- talking to them, don't be mean to them. It's everybody else that's the bad guys, and these sure. guys are, are the good guys. And I'm like, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I yeah. won't I won't call any of them out specifically or personally uh, during this thing. So we we went in there. We delivered this test. Testimony, and uh, you know, my my biggest concern was whether or not I was going to have enough time, and I just really didn't want to get cut off at the end. So I I did have to to drop a lot of things that I wanted to get across uh, to to um, to bring it down to like six and a half, seven minutes. And so I felt a little bit rushed, but I was able to to, to deliver the whole thing without getting yelled at. <clears throat> and again, that's great. I mean, Ron Paul let me do it, and uh, just just knowing that kind of makes me feel like he is in fact on the side of the free market. Um, I don't think there's many other congressmen that would have. I I certainly agree, and you know if if you there's ask probably yourself, a few, but not there's a far less than there are more. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course, absolutely. And and he is, I mean, he is the he is the moral leader in Congress. He's the guy that's been you know really doing this and sticking up for for the American taxpayer and, and the people for uh, a very long time. And so I, I am quite honored to have even just been considered and invited. I mean, it's it's just really. It's just really an amazing honor to get that from Dr. Paul. I mean, the guy is just, he's, he's absolutely hands down the best person in politics. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was great just to know that he thought of me. Um, and then when I thought about it, you know, I, and I didn't know it until after the video was actually posted on YouTube uh, from, the, from the, uh, <clears throat> the congressional office. But, you know, the title of the video on YouTube that first showed up was Ron Paul's final domestic monetary policy committee hearing. <clears throat> and I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, Ron Paul, in his very last term, in his very last subcommittee hearing, brings me on as a panelist to be the very last person to speak. Uh, you know, that right there says a whole lot for really what he believes. I mean, why would why would he save that to the end? 
Um, unless that's really how he felt when he when he's you know wrapping up his uh, his term there. And I do think you are on something with he can only say so much on the record without jeopardizing the career of his son. And right. I, I don't think Rand is a clone of Ron. And I do think that I actually agree with Ron more than Rand. But I think that when we look at things like individual liberty, things like standing up against the NDAA, and, yeah. and so many other issues that are actually on the agenda in the Senate, without a Rand Paul, those things wouldn't be there. And right. he's a politician. It, it, you know, in this conversation, we're, we're acknowledging that even Ron Paul is there a politician. There are all politicians. That's exactly right. right. <laughs> but... That's the system that we have to work with. And, and your thing is more working outside the system. But huh. here's, here's the thing that, like, this is where I really admire what you had to say when we had a private conversation earlier after this event. I think Ron Paul is not just morally uh, really a great guy. I think he's a very smart person. Uh -huh. And his position on the legal tender law is it should be repealed. You have a completely counter position and I found your argument for it very persuasive. And if you had told me, Jack, when I'm done with this argument, you'll agree with me, I would have said, bullshit. <laughs> Absolute, total bullshit. You will never change my mind. And five minutes later, I would have been eating crow. So could you explain why you're not for removing the legal tender law? Because this has been an issue for me for years. And when you explained what your view on it is, I went, well, okay, yeah. Well, let me start with a couple of disclaimers. Number one, I'm not for any type of government at all, period. I'm up for a voluntary society. Uh, I officially call myself an anarcho-capitalist. Uh, I've been told by a lot of people that I've talked to in the last few weeks that that's not something I should be referring to myself, and I should say voluntarist instead. I don't really know, but I don't think that we need government. A lot of people say government's a necessary evil, and I don't agree. I think in a society of people that focus on uh, morals, values, character, personal responsibility, so on and so forth. I don't think you need government. Um, so let me say that first. Second of all, I think that if you have government, there's good government and there's bad government. Is there? A, uh, are there a lot of things that the government does that's good? Absolutely not. But every once in a while, I think that there are some things in government that are worthwhile, that are that are positive and uh, and can actually protect. Um, the people that they, they represent or at least claim to represent. And so I think, you know, just like the Constitution, there are some great parts in the Constitution and there are some bad parts in the Constitution. Uh, there's good government and there's bad government. And when I talk about legal tender and the legal tender law, uh, I believe that this is one of the few things that actually might be good government. Um, so I, I won't go as far as saying, well, if the question was whether or not we could start the legal tender law, if that's a good thing, I, I wouldn't be there lobbying to create the law. Uh, but I, I'm also not there lobbying to get rid of it. <clears throat> and one of the places, like you said a moment ago, I was really bummed out during the, the congressional testimony was as soon as we finished the, the first, uh, the opening speech, the, the introduction, Ron Paul jumps right into a question. The question is, do you believe we need to repeal the legal tender law in order to pave way for complementary currencies? And the first panelist says, absolutely. Second panelist says, absolutely. And they come to me and I say, well, Dr. Paul, Mr. Chairman, before I, I issue the answer to, my, to your question, I'm wondering if you can give me a real quick summary of your understanding of the legal tenor laws as they exist today. And he says, well, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm Not I'm, right I'm, now is what he right said. Now, now. And so I just understand, like, Rob, that I have the benefit of hindsight and watching you dangle there, but... 
with that in mind, I would say if you were, if I had ever been granted that opportunity in the future, and you can take this and maybe use it because you might get another opportunity similar, not the same as similar. I, I think the right thing to have done would have been to 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 state what your belief of the legal tender law is and say, do you concur? <laughs> <laughs> and well, again, I get the benefit of hindsight. I'm sitting back with a with a uh, a nice Belgian triple ale and watching you dangle in front of a congressional hearing, and it's easy to say that. But I think that would have been probably more effective. Well, the the challenge I had, and and I've done a lot of research on this issue over the years because I was very curious about it myself when I started AOCS. I you know I I think that we walk a very fine line here between uh, lawful or legal and illegal. I think what we're doing is totally lawful, but we've got a lot of people that are concerned and and don't share the same, you know, go out there and just do it your own way beliefs that I have. And so they ask questions like, well, what about taxation? What about accounting? What about reporting? What about legal tender? What about? So I, I need to at least know, <clears throat> you know, how far out there we actually are. And so I've done a lot of research on the legal tender laws, and, and I've come to lots of different conclusions about it. But I should have printed out the legal tender law. I should have brought it with me because I knew that that was going to come up, and I didn't. And I was only 99.9 sure about exactly what it said, what it meant, and so I, I kind of stumbled a little bit. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to go out there, you know, guns blazing and just, you know, just give them hell. But I was, I was certain enough about it to say, well, you know, based on my understanding of the legal tender law, uh, it doesn't force us to do anything. It doesn't require us to do anything, and so therefore we can just leave it alone. I, I wouldn't change it at all. There's no law that says that minting private coinage is is illegal. There's no law that says bartering is illegal. And so if there's nothing that uh, makes what we're doing illegal now, then why bother changing or repealing any laws to to do what we're doing right now? Now let me jump in with with one of my misunderstandings of legal tender law. I was under the impression that if you're doing business. And somebody comes in with dollars and says, I want to do business with you. The legal tender law requires that you take dollars. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. It does and it doesn't. Because here's how you explain it to me. And if I get it wrong, correct me, right? Sure, sure. If I have a sign that says, Jack's Gold and Silver and Copper Barter Emporium, we take gold, silver, copper as barter and nothing else on my door. And you walk in and go, I want to buy this for dollars. And I go, go screw. There's nothing the person can do. Mm-hmm. It's only if I don't disclaim in advance of doing business with you what I require for payment, and we've done business, and now I'm tendering you a bill, you are able to to reconcile that bill with Federal Reserve notes. And nice. that's what the legal tender law, in essence, basically says. But if if here's how you explain it. You said, it, like, if, if you make a deal with me, and I say, Rob, I just bought this big-ass house with this big-ass yard, and I want you to come over and mow my grass. And I'll give you an ounce of silver every week that you mow my grass. And you come over and mow my grass, and then I say you're not getting your silver, and you sue me. The judge makes me give you silver, not the dollar value of silver, because right. we made the contract in silver. That's and right. there's nothing in the legal tender law that says we can't do that. Nothing at all. Well, let, let's start by reading the legal tender law. The legal tender law, sure. 31 U.S.C. 5103, says United States coins and currency, including Federal Reserve notes and circulating notes of Federal Reserve banks and national banks, are legal tender for all debts, public charges, taxes, and dues. Foreign gold and silver coins are not legal tender for debts. That's it. So the most disappointing thing for me about my question to Ron Paul was that he know, he should have known that he could have explained that. He could have read that in 10 seconds. You know, he could have said, here's what it says. And I would have said, yeah, okay, that's exactly what I thought. Let's move on. Um, In defense of Dr. Paul, he looked irritated and pissed. 
And I think if you would have caught him in a different mood at a different time, he might have done what you expected. Like, it seemed like, who the hell are you? It seemed like he didn't even hear the question. It was like, don't ask me a question, asshole. I asked you a question. I'm a congressman. You're at a hearing. You know, that's, that's what I saw there. Well, I, I pay really close attention to the comments and the feedback on different uh, websites that have linked this video. And, you know, I took a lot of crap from a lot of people saying, you know, Ron Paul, 76 years old, he doesn't need to be interrogated by you, especially when he's the only reason you're testifying in the first place, blah, blah, no, blah. I don't- with that at all. I don't agree with that at all. I just think that you caught him like I don't think he expected it and it like threw him. I really do. Yeah. Well let's let's get into this a little bit real quick here and and talk about the two things that are missing from the legal tender law that make it completely irrelevant. The number one is um there is no uh there's nothing in there that makes it exclusive. So it doesn't say anywhere that the Federal Reserve note is the exclusive form of payment for all debts, public charges. Blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's nothing in there that says it's the one and only way. It just says that it is. Number two is there's no, there's no mandatory requirement. There's, not, there's nothing in there that says that you have to do it. So without, if, if, it, the legal, if the Federal Reserve note is not the exclusive form of payment and it's not mandatory that you, that you accept it, it, really bear, it doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't have anything in there at all that requires you to do to accept Federal Reserve notes, as you said a moment ago, um, except for one very, very rare circumstance. And that circumstance is if a debt is incurred before a contract is negotiated that specifies payment terms. And that's really it. And that's that's Correct. where I get into the whole idea of good government. So my, my story, my example is let's suppose that I go to a restaurant with my family. I order dinner. We eat. We enjoy the meal. Ask for the check. We're here in Dallas, you know, Dallas, Texas. And without any kind of sign or notice upon entering the restaurant, we find out when we get the check that the restaurant exclusively accepts Korean won. I don't carry one. I don't have any one on me, so I can't pay this bill. They call the police, and I'm arrested for theft. Well, that's not really like very fair. It's not cool. I, I had an assumption that being in Dallas, Texas, I could use Federal Reserve notes to discharge my debt. Um, and that's exactly what the federal legal tender law does. It says if you incur a debt without prior negotiation, prior contract or agreement, then you can discharge that debt with Federal Reserve notes. That's or if it's it. priced in dollars, then that you damn well will accept them. That's exactly right. So if I go in a restaurant, I see the menu and everything's priced in one, I'm going to say to myself, well, hold on, can I ask a question here? What's the price in dollars? We don't accept dollars. Okay, well, then I can't order food here. So think about like when you go into a retail shop, you want to buy a new shirt. You go into the store, you pick up your shirt, you take it to the counter, and they say, I'm sorry, I, I don't accept dollars. I only accept Korean won. And you say, well, that's really strange, but your recourse at that point is to put the shirt back and come back later with won. So in the, the only time this legal tender law even has any relevance whatsoever is when you're in one of those rare situations where you incur a debt before you get to the opportunity or the, the uh, time to pay, if that makes any sense. And so you know, I'm thinking about this during this testimony. I'm like, well, I know what it says. I know that it doesn't have a requirement. I know that it's not an exclusivity thing. And so I think we can just leave the legal tender law exactly the way it is. Now, take it one step further. The uh, The legal tender law is really... Uh, exempted in most states. And what I mean by that is that almost every state that I've researched so far, uh, every single state that I've found research on has plenty of exceptions to that rule. For example, 
gas stations can refuse any bills larger than $20. A soda machine only accepts coins. Bus drivers can only accept tokens. A business owner who has an unlimited right to private contract can negotiate a deal in gold, silver, copper, direct barter, Korean won, or any other way that they like. And that's, again, that's something that all the state laws that I've found so far say that, that you're allowed to do. And again, like you pointed out in this situation of the, the lawn mowing incident, states will recognize contracts even if there's a default. So if you take me to court or I take you to court and we had an original agreement, it can still be delivered. So we have an agreement for you to give me an ounce of silver to mow your lawn. Well, let's say you had an agreement to give me a puppy to mow your lawn and the puppy died and you can't give me that puppy anymore. Well, then you can discharge that debt in Federal Reserve notes. But if the contract is, is valid, it's in writing, it's created before this debt is incurred, uh, and it has something that can, in fact, be delivered. Like, you can't give me, like, you know, 300 pounds of uh, kryptonite because it just is imaginary. It doesn't, doesn't exist, or I agree to give you both of my kidneys. Well, right. I can't do that. <laughs> i give you one, but I can't give you two. That's right. So as long as we have a valid contract, the courts will recognize it. And so if the courts are going to recognize it, if the states give you all kinds of exceptions, if the federal government doesn't have a mandate or a requirement of exclusivity, then what does the legal tender law do? And in reading through one of these uh, comments here on a website where this video popped up, um, the, the guy posting this comment says, if you Google legal tender, sooner or later you will find this. And it's a link to the treasury.gov website. Uh, on legal tender, where it says, quote unquote, private vendors are free to refuse Federal Reserve notes. And he says, we are our own jailers. And that's exactly what it comes down to. This, this whole, this whole idea of legal tender is based on the assumption and, and, uh, you know, beliefs and who knows where we got those beliefs. But the bottom line is on the federal, on the U.S. Treasury website, it says, there is, however, no federal statute mandating that a private business, a person, or an organization must accept currency or coins as for payment for goods or services. Private businesses are free to develop their own policies on whether or not to accept cash unless there is a state law which says otherwise. And again, all those state laws say exactly this and then some. Mm. Uh, the federal legal tender law, in my opinion, is completely irrelevant. And so Now, what do you say when somebody says, well, we're required to pay taxes in dollars? So if, if you invented the Rob Gray note, right, and it wasn't copper, silver, or, or gold, and it wasn't anything that had an intrinsic underlying value, it was just the Rob Gray note, yeah. and you built a, an economy of a million people using the Rob Gray, mm -hmm. and at the end of the year, as a merchant that only accepts Rob Grays, I say, I have profited 100,000 Rob Grays. You say I owe you 20% after all my deductions, my you know my effective tax rate. Uh -huh. Here's 20,000 Rob Grays. The uh -huh. government says bullshit, convert it to dollars. Well, wait, am I the government? No, you're the guy that sent it to Rob <laughs> Grays, and now, you, now you're saddled with a tax burden. How do you reconcile that? Well, that's the funny thing about the uh, all the barter and trade exchanges out there, where they've got these these organizations that are recognized by the IRS as called uh, as being called third party uh, record keepers, trade exchanges. And sure. so you you barter in these barter groups all day long, and there are hundreds of thousands of businesses that we've identified that are participants in these barter networks. Well, you trade, and then all of a sudden at the end of the year, just like you said in your example, you have a tax obligation to the U.S. government. And they don't accept your barter trade credits. Correct. And so one of the one of the most successful segments of any barter group is the charity, because at the end of the year you've got this huge tax burden. 
burden, you want to donate all this extra uh, a barter credit just so you don't have to pay tax and dollars on all this money you brought in. Uh, and so it's really a, a huge pain in the neck. Now, the tax thing is, is a big deal, um, and I'd like to not be here on record giving you my real opinion on tax. Um, but the, the strange thing about tax is that it's really kind of irrelevant when it comes to barter. In barter, there's, there's no gain on either end of the transaction, assuming you have a fair and equitable uh, barter transaction. If you've got a, an even deal, you trade a lawnmower for a, a chainsaw, there's, there's no tax. Neither one of us is licensed to, to uh, charge sales tax, so you don't have a yep. sales tax obligation. And since neither one of us walked away ahead of the game, we, we both think we got a fair deal. There's no capital gains tax to it, pay on like it. It's like for like. I've given you X dollars. You've given me X dollars. X minus X equals zero. Right. And, and, and while I agree with that, one of the interesting things brought up during the hearing was, yeah, that works fine for me and Rob, right? But how does that work when Ford Motor Company starts doing it? Or you, if you want to really make this big. Uh, and, and here's an idea I have, and I've, I've just had this idea now. The best thing in the world in the example I gave you, I am now – Profited a hundred thousand Rob Gray notes, right? Mm-hmm. Would be mm-hmm. for the exchange rate to be about a thousand to one. Yeah. So my my <laughs> my, my twenty thousand Rob Gray profit, um, when I convert that to dollars, it comes like out to bucks. two bucks, right? So here's your two cents, and and piss off and leave me alone. Oh wait, now no, now you owe me an earned income tax credit because I didn't make enough money to pay taxes and, and redistribute wealth to me. I, I don't think you'd get away with that, but you, you get my point. That like My kind of end-all, be-all at the end of the day is, if you're going to tax my barter currency, and I've made a profit in that barter currency, at some point there has to be an exchange rate, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever that exchange rate is, if it's a negative exchange rate, it reduces the profit and therefore the liability. Right. And and we get into a lot of those issues from a small merchant perspective uh, because when they accept silver, you know, as you may um, remember from the AOCS formula, we've got something called the face value. And Correct. so a lot of the, the merchants in our in our system accept currency at face value. Well, do they have to report the transaction at face value, or do they report it as spot value? Because uh, they could claim a loss if they if they got something that's worth uh, twenty eight bucks that they gave somebody fifty dollars worth of value for. So you got a lot of different scenarios out there, and that seems totally legitimate to me. Right. That that seems completely. I sold you a fifty dollar item for a twenty eight dollar spot value piece of silver, and my Cost behind it, my my cogs. However, I work that up is thirty six dollars. So where I profited sixteen in AOCS, I actually lost in dollar value eight bucks. That's right. So you yeah. got a loss. It, so I, I can't see how that's not legitimate, really. Well, you have the a lot of this comes down to the Federal Reserve money. You have the case out in Las Vegas some number of years ago about a guy that was paying his employees one ounce gold eagles. Uh, for a weekly salary. Do you remember that case? Yeah, and this is going the other direction. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we, we may not need to, to get into all that, but but the point is that the, the tax thing is really what gives the U.S. dollar any value at all. That At the end of the day, you can use it to pay your taxes. And if you, you lived in Robville and you traded Robville notes, then at the end of the day, you'd be able to use Robville dollars or notes to, to pay your taxes. Um, so that that's really where this this fiat currency gets its value. It gets its value from people being able to use it at the end of the day to, to remit taxes. Uh, and I'm not okay with taxation. It will accept it. That, that's that's the end all be all there. 
Right. So one of the challenges we have as as people is getting away from doing accounting in dollars. So when you have a barter transaction and somebody brings silver to the table, you're always asking that question of what's it worth? Well, it's worth $28. Well, there's dollars again. Why did we just get back into the, to dollars? When are we going to get to the point finally where you're starting to see prices on goods and services in ounces? Leave the dollar system completely out of it. Um, we're about ready to announce a contest promotion that uh, a new merchant has brought to the table for us. Uh, it's actually a pretty cool merchant. They do uh, executive jet travel service. And so the Silver Summit's coming up in October in Spokane, Spokane, Washington. And so this guy's giving away free round-trip travel to the Silver Summit. And he said, you know, I, I want to start accepting silver and gold. I'm like, okay, well, give me a price. Well, a light jet service would be one ounce of gold per hour. So if you need a three-hour trip somewhere, it's going to be three ounces of gold. And that's really what we want to see. Just leave dollars completely out of it. Because if dollars are no longer involved, you're just trading property for property, and that's it. It's not a taxable event, in my opinion. I uh, was about to fly to Spokane on your jet with uh, gold until you told me how much it costs. It's, it's pretty expensive unless you win this contest. So keep <laughs> yeah, an eye yeah. out for the contest details. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but again, that, that's really the challenge. The challenge is let's just get away from the dollar. Leave the feds, their Federal Reserve notes, and let's trade in property over here. Now, the part where this really starts getting scary for me is what's on the other side of the transaction. So I, I walked away from this hearing a little bit confused about Ron Paul and legal tender. And, you know, okay, maybe he, uh, maybe he asked that question just so I could go in there with my answer and let the world know that the legal tender laws are really irrelevant. But the legal tender law is like line item number one in his uh, free competition and currency act bill that he's got in front of Congress right now. And so he's not entirely there, but let's take it one step further and talk about all these different states right now that are pushing this honest money legislation. Utah officially has uh, the honest money bill passed at this point. And so now in Utah, gold and silver are recognized as quote unquote, quote legal tender. So the part where it starts getting weird for me is the contradiction between the honest money legislation at the state level and the Ron Paul Free Competition and Currency Act at the federal level. Ron Paul wants to eliminate these legal tender laws. Okay, fine, fine. I, I don't think the legal tender law matters, but if you want to eliminate and you can get that done, go for it. Um, meanwhile, in the states, the states are trying to get gold and silver to become legal tender. And I think somebody should get those two groups together and, and try to get them on the same page. Um, I don't like the idea of of legalizing gold and silver as legal tender from a state level because I don't want the state to come into my business and tell me that I have to start accepting a particular form of payment. Mm. I think the legal tender law we have right now says, yeah, if you can accept whatever you want, if the state comes in and says you have to accept silver, then that's kind of unfair to me as a business owner. I thought we wanted to like do away with government telling people and business owners like, you know, how to how they have to run their business. So You've got this federal issue that I think is irrelevant, and then you've got these state issues that I think are actually a really big deal. And the reason I think it's a big deal is because right now, gold and silver are not legal tender, right? I think that's good. Gold and silver are not monetary instruments. I think that's really, really good. In fact, critical. And as long as they're not money, monetary instruments, the government can't track them. They don't ask you to report them. They let you trade them. They're treated as property, not as money. And so as long as that's the is case. Is that true, though? Because my understanding is like when I accept silver as a business person, I'm supposed to report the value of that silver's income. Well, they, they want you to, to report any kind of income uh, on capital gains. 
And so they look at it as, as property. So if you bought a, uh, bought a house you know, for $100,000 and then you sold it for $200,000, they don't consider your house money, but they certainly want to tax your capital gains, right? Sure. So, so let, let me give you a different example. If you try to leave the country right now with more than $10,000 cash, you got to declare it. If you Correct. get at the border with more than $10,000 cash on your way out, they're going to give you a hard time about it, throw you in jail, cite you, who knows what they'll do. But you have to report it because it's money, and you're not allowed to take more than $10,000 out at one time um, because you got to declare it, right? Well, imagine you have 10 ounces of gold. Gold right now is 1600 and something dollars an ounce maybe. All right, 16 grand. There you go. So you got $16,000 worth of gold. It's up in the air as to whether or not you actually have to report leaving the country with 10 ounces of gold. You leave the country, depending on which customs agent you bump into on your way out the door, you probably don't have to report that. Some will tell you that gold is a monetary instrument and you've got to report it. Others will tell you, no, you're fine. You can take as much gold away as you want. That's not money. And so gold is right there right now on the fence as uh, of being branded as a monetary instrument and having the government require you to declare it if you leave the country with it. Silver's not on that radar. You can leave the, the country with as much silver as you want, and you don't have to say anything about it because it's not money. It's not a monetary So you're saying if I was, no matter which custom agent I run into, if I was leaving the country with 100 pounds of silver, it's my own business. That's right. Really? And I've, I haven't left the country with that much silver yet, but I have done lots and lots of travel with that much silver. And they could care less. They look at it like you're walking through there with a bunch of old utensils from the, uh, the, from the family fortune. It's wow. like, oh, silver, okay, I don't know what that's worth. Gold, wow. pretty much the same thing. But you walk through and they open up a suitcase full of you know, $150. $20 bills or $100 bills, yeah, they're, we're having a conversation at minimum. They're taking you into the back room and they want to know where you got it. They want to know what you're doing with it. They want to check it for all kinds of trace elements. You know, it's Why didn't you declare it in the first place? Yep. That's exactly right. So my record right now is 2,600 ounces of silver through an airport, and all TSA wants to know is how corrupt the Federal Reserve is and what we're going to do to take back control of our monetary supply. I mean, that's what these guys want to hear. But you go through there with that much cash, and the county sheriff's going to find his way out there, and they're going to have a little conversation with you. Yeah, you know what? Um, one of the things, this is totally off the subject, but I, you know, I just got to see you again finally uh, down in Arlington, mm -hmm. and you were in your booth, and you had your copper, your silver, and your gold, and you were, you were selling it to people. And you had a 100-ounce bar of silver, mm -hmm. and I picked that up. And I'm going to tell every person that wants to understand honest value, even if you can't afford a 100-ounce bar of silver, you should go to, down to a metal shop and you should hold one. <laughs> I, I'm completely in agreement with Chris Dwayne. I remember reading that in one of the things he wrote, and I thought, yeah, whatever. When I picked that up, it blew me away that that small bar weighed as much as it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take a moment and give yourself the pleasure of holding on to that much real money because uh, it's a lot of fun and it's it's it'll really remind you what what value and what a store of value really actually is. Well, I know when I handed it to my wife, she was like, she put her hand. Out. I'm like, no, no, you need to. Like, you don't get what this is going to do when I let go of it. And because I picked it up, I was really blown away. And I was also thinking, not only is this really cool, that if anybody here uh, pulled anything, if I hit him in the head with this. Oh, yeah. You know, it, <laughs> anyway, I'll let you go back. I'm sorry. But it was just it just made a big impact on me when I picked up that bar. I've oh. held 100 ounces of silver, but in coin. Yeah. I've never held a 100-ounce bar, and you don't realize how much, like, how compact it gets at that yeah. point. Try it with a 1,000-ounce bar, and you'll, you'll really be wow. able to get it. Yeah. 
anyway, so my point is, leave leave the government away from our money. St- like, if if you're one of those people out there that's listening right now, I really encourage you to do your own independent research on this legal tender law stuff, on this uh, on this honest money legislation, because I view it as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Whenever the government says that they've got a solution, they're going to do something positive for us. I'm always very, very apprehensive. I'm, I'm, you know, very skeptical. Uh, I think it's Ronald Reagan that said the nine most dangerous words in any language are "I'm from the government and I'm here to help." Um, you know, this honest money bill, for better, for 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 the most part, sailed right through the Utah legislature, and when you think about honest money, gold and silver being kind of anti-banker, anti-Federal Reserve, my, my question is, how did that happen? How did it get through there so unopposed, so quickly, when the bankers know that, that you know, they're not going to be big fans of that? I think they're up to something. I don't know what. Well, I but- think they're heading back. I think that the, the, the future is a return to uh, a gold standard and possibly a bimetallic standard. And I think that... The reason for that is it's another opportunity to screw the people. I think there's a lot of like the gold bugs out there. You know, the only gold is money crowd, Rob. That, that well, like, hold on, hold on. We're talking about the bankers. You think the bankers are okay with that return to the old times? I don't think it's that they're okay with the return to old times. I think they're okay with it if they orchestrate it. Well, do you think the bankers have bought and sold most politicians in most states? And correct, correct. Okay. So my correct. question is, why are these? Bankers letting this thing go through unless they think that they can get their hands on it some way. Unless they exactly. say, well, geez, if we make gold and silver legal tender, they're monetary instruments now, and you got to report that. We can track it. We get, we get to tell you to tell us exactly where it is. Now, the, the place where the, where the rubber really hits the road, uh, and, and this really hits home for me, is with the Lakota Indian Nation. And they've got the Free Lakota Bank, which is an exclusive silver bank. You know, the bank's really not even the right term for what they're doing up there. It's a silver depository. And the, the reason they can get away with not having to ask for names or social security numbers for all the account holders is because they're not dealing in a monetary instrument. The know-your-customer rules don't apply to them because they're not storing and using Federal Reserve notes. They're not dealing in money. It's just like going down to a local storage shed and paying 100 bucks a month to have a, a little storage container there. You know, they're not asking for social security numbers. They're not asking for backup withholding, and that's because they're not storing cash. Well, maybe and they never touch dollars. Right, exactly. Not so in the, that transaction anyway. So you put silver – you have the new card thing where people can move money onto a card and then pay with a card. But but basically those people are selling it in an exchange, getting the dollars put on the card. and then, So the Indians are not touching the, 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 the dollars ever. They, they never touch dollars at, at any level, and that's rule one from day one. We're not going to ever touch dollars. And it's really inconvenient. It's, it's caused it, uh, their process to grow very slowly because most people don't get that. Uh, well, can I mail a check in to make a deposit? No, you can't. Go get metal, ship the metal. So the point is that if the government comes out and they make gold and silver legal tender, I think that you'll see an end to the free Lakota Bank because the Lakota Bank will then have to start asking for names and social security numbers the way every other bank does. And so I really don't want to see that happen because I think they're on to something great up there. Uh, and so, again, I, I, I'm debating now whether to come out publicly against the, the honest money uh, bills Um you know, like you said, you know, if, if I ever tried to convince you of that argument, you would have, you know, completely blown it off. But after looking into it, you've you've uh, come to discover that it might not be everything that we think that it was. Um, and well, so, it's because of what I believed that it said that it didn't. I believe that it required me to accept dollars. It does not. It requires me to accept dollars if I don't otherwise disclaim what I accept. Right. And that's that's a game changer. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. My my concern is that 
you know, really the AOCS right now has like two planks, two two things that really define us out there. The first plank was the position that we came out with against the Liberty Dollar. And I think you and I have talked extensively about that in the past. Yeah. And, and my point in, in that whole plank is that fraud is fraud. You can dress up fraud in as much patriotic cloak as you want, but there's still a difference between right and wrong, good and evil, and being dishonest in the marketplace. And we want to see barter done in an honest and ethical manner. We think that it can be done, and we think we're doing it that way. And we encourage anybody that thinks that we're not to come to us and, and call us out on it. Uh, don't just give us a high five because we're you know fighting the Fed. Tell us what we need to do to do our jobs better, and we'll do it. Um, so that was I, really. I agree with that. Let me just say when you when I saw your piece when that what's his name went to jail um, or prison more accurately the guy that founded the Liberty Dollar Bernard yeah yeah and you put out the piece on that and you put out the video his own video of him passing the Liberty Dollar coin off as the ten the new ten dollar the new silver ten dollars what he was calling it and I think a lot of people. When they saw that, they didn't get that this was a while ago, and silver was trending for like six dollars and eighty cents while he was doing that. Four bucks, four bucks. Okay, four bucks. Okay, right, even right. worse. Even right? worse, right? So now he's passing as a ten dollar coin in the the normal world. When I saw that, and you just mentioned about you can put as many flags and stuff around as you want to, the first quote that came to my mind when I saw that patriotism is the last refuge of scoundrels. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what I thought. I thought this guy's being held up as you know being attacked, and he's for the liberty movement and all. And I have been on a tear lately. I don't know if you you, you don't listen to all the shows or anything, but I've been on a tear lately about the fact that just like we say that police officers need to be the good ones need to be the first ones to stand up against the corrupt ones, uh-huh. or that you know when you hear on talk radio about Muslims, the well, there's good Muslims. Why aren't they standing up in the face of terrorism and what have you? Mm-hmm. Well, in the liberty movement, we need to be the first ones to stand up and say. That's wrong. Right. You, you can't just claim you're with us and then we'll go, okay, here's a pass. Here's your monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. You have to walk the walk, talk the talk, and have morals and ethics or the market will punish you. And in right. this case, the state also punished them. Right, exactly. And the market did as well. I mean, uh, we, we've done amazing things in the last five years. Uh, I don't have access to all the Liberty Dollar numbers, but I think that people really picked up on uh, the positive message that we were building into the medallions that have been minted in partnership with the AOCS, and we've done very well over the last couple of years with it. So that was that was campaign plank, or not campaign plank, but uh, AOCS plank number one, what really defines this. We're, we're people out there that are saying, okay, let's, let's do this in some sort of manner that people are going to respect, because if we can show people people the light and show them the truth um, in, in an honest manner, then they're going to be fans of ours for life. If they ever find out that we lied to them to get them into our movement, they're going to hate us for life. And we'd rather keep them around and build long-term relationships as opposed to just sell a couple coins real quick and, uh, and get burned on the back end. Uh, position number two, plank number two that defines who we are. Uh, I believe is shaping up to be this legal tender thing. I think we're the the few guys out there that are paying attention uh, and doing enough research independently to know that these legal tender laws are irrelevant. They may even be helpful in situations like going into a restaurant and being able to to settle the debt without getting in a big argument. Um, and the legal tender laws are quite possibly a wolf in sheep's clothing. And let me let me pull up the legal tender act from Utah because this is the most confusing part for me. Line 17, well, let's say line 15 and 16 first in the Legal Tender Act State of Utah says, this bill recognizes gold and silver coins issued by the federal government to be legal tender in the state. Now, 
one strange thing is that the state of Utah does not actually define legal tender anywhere at all in all of the Utah code. Uh, in fact, the U.S. code doesn't define legal tender anywhere, which is a little weird. But line 17, the very next line of the Utah Honest Money Bill says, this bill does not compel a person to tender or accept gold and silver coin. So wait a minute. The, the two complaints that I had about the – or the two thoughts that I had about the U.S. legal tender – uh, law is that it doesn't require anyone to do it. And it doesn't mandate that they that they have to do it exclusively. This Utah bill right here says no person is compelled to accept or tender gold and silver coin. So what does this legal tender law do in Utah that they didn't have before? Does it compel the state to accept it for the payment of taxes? That's it. That's the only thing it says. It says provides... Um, Let's see here. Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't even doesn't say even that. Do that. <laughs> but it doesn't really do anything. It says we recognize that people can exchange gold and silver. It, well, I, I would say that since it doesn't exempt or it doesn't specifically say the state doesn't have to accept it, it I think it's really if you if you read between the lines, it's saying that the state is going to recognize legal tender or gold and silver coins issued by the federal government as legal tender. And so I think it says it does not compel a person to tender or accept gold and silver coin, but it doesn't say it okay. does not compel the government. So what it does say is, let's say I get my, and this, this, it sounds like this, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but I get my bill for my property taxes in the state of Utah, and mm -hmm. they are for... I don't know, $2,500, that I should be able to go down there with the equivalent value of U.S. silver or gold coin and say, here's $2,500 in silver, here's my my debt settled. And and under that, they should have to accept that. Right. So really the only thing that I see the legal tender law here or the honest money bill in Utah doing is allow you to pay your taxes in gold and silver. And that just doesn't get me that excited. I mean, and, and from the way I read it anyway, it only applies to U.S. minted right. gold and silver coins, so eagles. <laughs> so, so if I go down there with Lakota Sioux silver, they can say, no, we don't take that. <laughs> so, or if so, I go down there with a silver bar, you know, I say, okay, well, right, this, this silver right. bar's worth 2500 In fact, this silver bar's worth $2,600 at spot price. Give me 100 bucks back and change. They don't right. have to take it. So you can you have to take your gold and silver uh, and sell it at the pawn shop, and then go out there and buy U.S. minted silver at three fifty over spot, so you can go and pay your tax bill at spot. Congratulations! Is that what you worked uh, so hard on in there in Utah to get this honest money legislation passed? I just don't get it. I'm just I'm very confused by it, and I I don't I, I'm wondering if the people that are sponsoring these honest money bills and pushing the representatives to pass it know that they're not doing anything at all. I think that's why it's yes, why it sailed through. I think that's why it sailed through because it, it let people look like liberty oriented uh, politicians that didn't really do anything. Yeah, it, it's paint. Yeah, you know you can paint a car; it's still what it is underneath the hood. Mm-hmm. Well, very strange. This is this is just like I said. This is one of those things that I'm starting to like research. I'm starting to smell a little something a little fishy, and I'm starting to say, eh, this should probably be one of those things that defines the AOCs. We're we're not big fans of the government. We don't want the government involved in our money. <clears throat> don't change any laws. Don't create any new laws for us. Just leave us alone. And uh, and that's been a major position for us uh, in the last couple of weeks. I've got uh, so. Um when I was talking, I did a show kind of dedicated to your appearance up in Washington, and I was talking about um, what we'll be seeing from the AOCs in the future. 
Uh, I used an analogy I thought you really liked because uh, you told me you did, and that was that if you were holding a coin and you're looking at the edge, that's what you see of AOCS right now, and that I know certain things that are coming, and that if you started turning that coin, you start to see more of the whole picture. Um, I have not said anything about what I know what you're working on, but I'd like to give you the opportunity as we get toward closing up here today to say whatever it is that you are willing to talk about publicly about what's coming. Sure. Well, let me let me wrap up the previous discussion, and uh, that'll give us a great lead into uh, a few words that I, I will offer uh, to you and, and your audience. Um, one of the things that was really apparent from the, the testimony in the hearing was that the people in government want really really um, want two things, and number one is they they want to do something to be part of the solution. So I, I don't really think that they enjoyed me going in there and tell them to, to do nothing, leave them alone, to just to stop fiddling around, do exactly what you've done for the last hundred years. That's absolutely nothing. Leave us alone. I think that they actually want to get involved and they want to go back to their people and tell their people of their district that they've been doing something positive for them. I think they really, in their in their hearts, uh, want to do something positive. I don't. I think that most of the time they screw up and they think they're doing something good and it ends up just completely interfering with the market, but they want to do something good. The second thing is that they really want to protect us. They want to keep us safe from ourselves. Uh, they, they probably look at us as being unintelligent, stupid people, that if we didn't have government around, we'd all kill ourselves in, in a matter of days. And so we really need government there to keep us safe, especially from ourselves. And that was really uh, embodied for me by a question I got from uh, Congressman Lukatmeyer, and he said, "Well, you know, if you have this private currency going out there, and you've got all this uh, this privately issued money, you're going to have privately uh, created banks. Uh, they're going to exist without uh, you know consumer protection, and that's not a good thing. I mean, we've got the FDIC here in in this country to uh, to keep banking uh, deposits safe. And I was really bummed out that the question didn't come to me because the answer was so simple. You know, the FDIC." can guarantee your deposit, but they can't guarantee the purchasing power of your deposit. And that was that was really simple because the FDIC came out in 1933 when at the time an ounce of gold was about $20 an ounce, depending on what time of year you actually look at the price. But 1933, the FDIC comes out, you take your $20, um, you put it in the bank, and tomorrow that bank goes out of business. Well, the FDIC will be happy as anything to give you your $20 back. No problem. It's guaranteed. But how much gold can you buy today for $20? It's not a tenth of an ounce. It's not one ounce. It's not, you know, twentieth of an ounce. It's not even a gram. It's one eightieth of an ounce. What's that? A, a, almost a, a little more than a third of a gram. I mean, yeah. that, that same twenty dollars buys you so little. And, and the follow-up question to that was, well, aren't these community currencies issued by rich, rich people at the expense of the poor people? How are the poor people going to handle? The uh, you know the fact that all these rich, rich Republicans are coming out there and uh, going to take advantage of them once again, and again the question didn't come to me, and I would have loved to have said, you know, Mr. Congressman, do you know what the poorest part of your very own country is? Do you know where the poorest part of the United States of America is? And he would have said, oh, I don't know, maybe Detroit or something. Well, no, it's yeah. it, it's not Detroit, it's not Cleveland, it's not Kansas City, it's not some dried up industrial center somewhere. It's actually the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which is the southwest corner of South Dakota. And they've got a 95% unemployment rate. They've got a 22% male suicide rate. They've got a 42-year average male lifespan and a 75% illiteracy rate. It is by far 
the most amazing example of poverty that I've ever seen. I mean, I've driven through the Pine Ridge Reservation plenty of times, and it's just the worst of the worst. And it's a perfect super uh, – it's, it's an absolute perfect example of welfare. And it's a perfect example of what happens after 100 years of training someone to just look for handouts. Don't go out there. Don't find a job. Don't create value. Just sit and wait around for the government to do something. And it's very, very, very sad. And it's the poorest part of the entire country. It, it's, uh, it's by far the poorest um, – uh, I think it's by county, it's the poorest county in the entire country. And these are the people, Mr. Congressman, that have decided to start their own community currency because they're flat broke, not because they're flooded with capital. It's predominantly poor people that launch these community currencies because they want to take control of their own economic independence. And so after 100 years of being completely broke, the Lakota Indian Nation has taken advantage of a golden opportunity. And that opportunity is the issuance of their own currency to use as a community currency on the reservation. And it's also to start their own silver bank to accept uh, deposits and to bring in capital from across the country, you know, with which they uh, pay out small interest on deposits for term contracts and do some other stuff. Um, but we've been able to, to work with them directly over the last few years and create a model for what I call commodity banking. And I truly believe that as soon as we decide to go big with this thing, it'll catch on very quickly and it'll change the whole face of banking in the next 18 to 36 months. And that's my, that's my sincere hope. And the goal is to make it so that in 18 months, you can bank in anything that you want, whether it's gold or silver or oil or copper or peanut shells, anything that has value. You can have chickens and eggs and pork, anything that has value and a market that allows you to easily monetize that value, you can bank there. You can store your wealth in that value and turn it back into dollars whenever you need to. So I call it commodity banking, and it's, it's really the thing that we've been pioneering over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. We didn't know it at first, and, uh, and now we see it very clearly, and we're concerned about it because we know that given – let me pose this question to you. Uh, if you were a person that had a job and you were getting a paycheck every week and you could take your paycheck every week in silver or you could pay, take your paycheck every week in dollars, which one would you prefer? Uh, honestly, I have to tell you, this is this is what I would prefer. I would prefer enough dollars to satisfy all my obligations and debts and mm -hmm. the balance in silver. There you go. Well, that's that's what I think any person that's paying attention would say. That The challenge is that usually most people are in a little bit over their heads and they barely get enough dollars to get by. Um, but that's the question. The question is, well, okay, if I take my paycheck in silver, can I use it to pay my mortgage? Can I use it to pay my Correct. cell phone bill? Can I use it to pay my... My utility Dish bill. network, my internet service provider, pay the rent on my office so I can continue to do business. Right, exactly. Can I buy gas? You've got all these things that you can only get in dollars right now, and that's a little bit of a personal failure on, on our part because we've been around for a number of years trying to develop a barter network where you can actually get some of that stuff in, in silver and gold. Now, we're coming up short because we don't have a gas station, you know, a national gas chain, and we don't have uh, Southwest Airlines accepting it, and we don't have uh, Bank of America accepting it for mortgages. So we've got a long way to go. But what if you could get your entire paycheck in gold or silver, and then you could put that somewhere, and anytime you need to, be able to instantaneously monetize whatever you need to take and use to pay 
those dollar obligations. And so that's what I call commodity banking, where you could keep all of your value uh, in, in metal, in some sort of commodity, and have access to it instantaneously through the card service network. And that's, that's a little bit more of a glimpse as to what this Lakota project has become, because it's, it's the model that we're using to develop the commodity banking uh, model and scenario. And we've got a couple of really cool players that have stepped to the table, and I'm not allowed to say who they are yet, uh, but we've got a couple cool guys out there that, that are... Um, now, they have a significant amount of resources and are going to help this thing get from where it is now, starting with these small Indian nations in the U.S., uh, to developing a model that we can actually branch out and market to small, locally-owned community banks uh, so that they can offer commodity banking service, and then internationally, so that uh, all across the globe, Austria, uh, Switzerland, Lebanon, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, U.S., Mexico, South America, you've got places where you can go to commodity bank and uh, store your, your, your wealth and real money and have access to it by wire or Visa debit card anywhere in the world at, at 24, 25 million merchants across the, across the globe. Um, and so this is not just a theory anymore. This is actually a reality. Um, Lakota probably two or three months ago added the first step in that direction where they offered uh, they offer now a service called the original credit transaction where you can bank there um, store your silver there and then if you want to withdraw 20 ounces you put in uh, your visa check card number of your chase or bank of america or any bank that issues a standard visa debit card and within one to three days the dollar amount at spot will show up on that debit card so you don't have to worry about uh, taking it down to the pawn shop and selling it. You don't have to worry about finding somebody to, to give you 10% of their spot for it. You can monetize it instantaneously at spot and have that cash show up on a check card in one to three days. And it's a currency exchange. I think you used a very important word there, nation. Um, by treaty, these Indian reservations are nations recognized by the United States government. Now, I've always said if you, if you trust your government, talk to an Indian. <laughs> <laughs> right, but but at least on paper, these these are treaty based nations recognized within the borders of the United States, having their own sovereignty. Yes, and they run that way. And I would like to propose this to the person that goes, well, they can do this or that anytime. You talk about a loser political position for a congressman, a president, <laughs> a governor to attack an Indian reservation and their sovereignty at this point in history. Yeah, I, I think you might as well just resign your position because the next election you are freaking gone. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat; it doesn't matter. It would be a poison pill. I mean, that's how I see it anyway. Well, the the government after the Liberty Dollar case tried branding uh, Bernard as a a, a rare form of uh, domestic financial terrorist, and that really didn't fly. Most of the people that out there was that was. As much as I was opposed to what he's doing, that was bullshit. Yeah, it, it was like, come on, guys, are you serious? A lot of people are paying attention to gold and silver. A lot of people are buying it, and this guy's making coins, and you want to call him a domestic financial terrorist? So they're they're trying to demonize gold and silver. Um, but you know, just just to take a step back, Pine Ridge a number of years ago tried to grow their own hemp. And the DEA went in there with helicopters and torched all the fields. Um, and so, yeah, there are there are examples out there you can find where the government's going to step in and, and do that. But that's the war on drugs, and drugs are very, very, very well, bad, as we know. And, and even if another nation, a, a true nation like Colombia, passed a law that says you can you can grow coca, 
Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't stop our country from doing the same thing there. Right, exactly. But that's but, a, that's a totally different world. Like you were saying, have the government try to go in there and interfere with their ability to store their own wealth uh, in silver. I mean, that's like you said, that's political suicide. Yeah. And so they tried Brandon Bernard as a domestic terrorist. That didn't fly. And so it's going to be real hard for them to explain that, that they're trying to take control of their own wealth, and they're trying to open a depository there. Uh, and you've got other silver depositories privately owned all across the country. There's nothing wrong with it, nothing illegal about it. So not only are they sovereign, they can get away with a whole lot of different things that, that other people can't, but even if they weren't, there's nothing illegal with having a silver depository, and again, you don't have to collect names or social security numbers in order to do, to do that. Um, at, at the same time... Because it's not a monetary unit, so it's not a financial relationship. That's exactly right. So, And that even keeps it out of all this crap they put in the Patriot Act. That's right. That's exactly right. So they're doing something really cool. They're taking back control of their own wealth, and they're, they're not touching dollars at any point, so they're staying outside of the Federal Reserve System. And what we've been able to bring to the table for them is that monetization component, where we've got a network of very large authorized dealers all across the country. Uh, we've got the Mint now in Dallas, you know, that, that's gives us the ability every month to monetize up to 150,000 ounces of silver. And so, yeah, there's an, there's an interchange. There's uh, silver going into the bank. There's silver coming out of the bank. And as long as uh, no more than 150,000 ounces uh, is leaving greater than that that's going into the bank, uh, we can monetize that instantaneously. And like I said, the, the position they're in right now is one to three days. Um, eventually, they'll have a relationship with a debit card provider that gives them instantaneous monetization. So you swipe a card and it sells your holdings on the fly. Uh, we're still probably six to nine months away from being able to, to introduce that, but that's where we're heading. And I think that I think that if you take uh, you know a, a person that's uh, paying attention, you know, average intelligent, average uh, ability to reason, and you say, hey, look, would you rather take your paycheck in paper or would you rather take it in silver? All things being equal, you can use the silver just as easily, just as efficiently as you can use the paper. Which would you prefer? I think people in, in a grand scale are going to start preferring silver. And when I say grand scale, I don't mean everyone. I don't even mean 10% of the population. We only really need 3 4 5% of it to start making a huge difference in the silver market, in the global financial market, um, before you know the cat gets out of the bag and everyone else starts catching on. So that's our goal. For it them. all comes down to the, to the marketplace. You, if, if you told me, Jack, we're going to pay you a new Belgian uh, bottle caps, if I can pay my rent in that, I don't give a shit. Yep. That's it. We, I mean, because that's that. Because here's this is what I call Spirico's law of economic reality and bullshit, <laughs> right? Um, the government can convince the people that something that's not worth much is worth a lot, mm-hmm. but it cannot convince the people that something worth a lot is worth a little. Yeah. So the, the government has convinced you that a Federal Reserve note for twenty dollars is worth something, and. They've done it so successfully, if you take a $20 Federal Reserve note down to Albertson Supermarket, you can buy food with it. Mm-hmm. It, it. They've done that. But they'll never be able to convince the American public that silver's worthless. Right. And they really tried in 1965 with the coinage act. Mm-hmm. They said, don't hoard it like they're going to come kick your ass if you hoard it, you know, save your quarters. Um, and, and, and they said that the, the new money is worth just as much as the old. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how many 1964 and back quarters you found in circulation lately. You know, Gresham's <laughs> law has demonstrated they can't convince people that something with value doesn't have it. Right. But they can convince them the other way around. And um, I think that leaves the door open for work like you're doing. Well, th- this is really the first step. We've got a long way to go, but... Uh 
you know, the, the Indian nations have given us a really great and unique place to start. And uh, it's small. It's, uh, it's not, you know, the largest institution out there in the world. But there are a lot of Indian nations out there that are looking at us now and saying, well, can we do that too? And how do we partner up? How do we, how do we get involved in this thing? Can we issue our own currency? So you'll see, I believe, uh, later this week, a press release drop for the Atui Nation out of the Polynesian Kingdom, uh, getting involved. They're actually working on a treaty right now with the 15 United Polynesian countries to get them all on board and have a, an official treaty between uh, those nations for their official currency. Um, but but as these groups start coming together, uh, you know, like you said, it's it's a lot like herding cats out there, but even cats in large quantities can, can have their voices heard. So uh, that's what we want to do. We want to start someplace small and, and off the radar, have it grow, and then all of a sudden overnight just have the thing blow up and uh, – and have commodity banking be out there uh, as a legitimate competitor to the, the conventional banking industry. So you'll see more of that coin as we begin to, to turn into this next phase. Um, we got some guys on our team that are saying, keep quiet, wait for the system to fall apart, and then let's, let's launch. And uh, then you got guys like me that are saying, let's, let's do what we can now to proactively go out there into the financial system, create alternatives so that maybe we can, we can stop this thing from falling apart. Maybe we don't well, have- Or when it falls apart, it's already there. I think the people that say, wait until it falls apart are misguided. And I know Chris Dwayne feels that way to a degree. And I, I, really, I really love the work Chris has done. And I, I consider him a personal friend and, and a great uh, advocate to the liberty movement. But I don't agree 100%. Even when I had him on the show, I said I don't agree. There's a disclaimer up front. I do not agree 100%. And my belief is you have to have systems in place before a failure. Yeah. So that they'll be accepted before, even if they're only accepted by two or three percent. Mm-hmm. The fact that that's working when everything else falls apart, then everybody else goes, huh? Well, maybe we'll go do this. Where if everything's a catastrophe, and there's and you're going, okay, now there's this. They're like, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right, and that's that's what I believe too. I think that I think that if we do a good job now, that when the currency finally falls apart and we're we're We've got a foothold in enough small communities across the country. Some of those people are going to say, "Well, can we just use this silver and gold and copper community currency thing? It's been it's been working okay for us for the last couple of years. Is that all right? Can we just you know ignore what the New World Order wants us to use with their one world currency and, and use this instead?" So my goal is to to establish these systems now, test them out, uh, take them from theory to to working reality, uh, get the bugs identified and removed. Um, so that when things start to fall apart, uh, we're ready. Or, like I said a moment ago, we, we may even be able to have enough impact to to not uh, or to interfere with things falling apart so much that that we can minimize the impact that it's going to have on on people that are paying attention. Pre-battle triage. That's it. It's like you said, you know, uh, do things that will improve the quality of your life, whether that day ever comes or not. I mean, uh, most people believe at some point in our lifetime now the dollar is going to fail. And so let's do let's let's improve the quality of our lives now. Let's start trading silver with each other. Let's build connections inside a small community so we know who those people out there, uh, who who they are out there that we can go to when we want want to need to trade silver. Uh, and let's develop those relationships now. And if we never need to use them in the future, uh, you know, at least we can get value from them. Um, you know, regardless of what the future brings. So, well, in, in your words, uh, exchanges of uh, legitimate exchange between men who produce. That's exactly right. And it just takes a little bit of thinking outside of the box uh, and, and a little bit of a desire to, to just you know, find the people out there that have the character uh, of somebody that you'd want to do business with. And it's, it's not always easy, but they're, they're few and far between, but they are, there are men like that that exist, and, uh, and it's time now to go out and find them. 
Awesome, awesome stuff, Rob. You want to give folks uh, any of your websites or anything you think they should be checking out? Sure. Check out opencurrency.com. You can see the full report there about the five things I learned in D.C. Um, You can get the full testimony, I'm sure, on Jack's site and on on my site as well. Uh, FreeLakotaBank.com. For the time being, you can open an account now with no fee, no minimum deposit. I think that's all going away September 1st. So if you are curious about what's going on there, you can get involved now uh, for nothing. Um, they are getting to roll out some merchant services stuff to go head-to-head with PayPal, and I think that's going to be cool. Uh, I think a lot of people are pissed off that PayPal is now issuing 1099s on all payments received. So if you want to find yep. a way to, to get around that, get paid in, in real silver, and be able to monetize that in one to three days, uh, that's a good reason to bank with Lakota. So check out freelakotabank.com. Um, and I think that's it. We've got Mulligan Mint here opening in the next few weeks in Dallas. Uh, MulliganMint.com if you want to check out what's going on there. So we've got a, cool, a lot of cool irons in the fire, almost almost too many, as I was telling you a few moments ago. <laughs> no, that's great stuff, man. And I would like to say this, and I'm not just being nice to you because you're a friend. Um, patriotism is something that, that's been bantered around a lot lately, and people equate patriotism with holding up a sign or calling a congressman or writing a blog post. To me, patriots are people that do things and make things happen, and you've been doing that for a long time now. And I'd like to thank you for being a true patriot, because a true patriot, to me, is judged by their actions, not by their words. So thank you for the work you've been doing, Rob. Well, I appreciate that, but just remember that I'm not doing it for free. Um, you know, I, I knew <laughs> from day one that if I was going to do this and I was going to have an impact on the on the U.S. and global financial markets, I was going to have to do it at a profit, or else I wasn't going to be able to do it at all. And so I've had a, the fortune to be able to, to do what I love and do something that I really believe is good for humanity uh, as a whole, which is a very vague statement, but <clears throat> I'll, I'll just leave it out there for now. But uh, but also do it and be able to live a, a good life at the same time. I've got a wife and two good kids, and, and we live in a nice place uh, here just outside of Dallas. So I've been having a lot of fun. So it hasn't been all risk. It hasn't all been, uh, uh, you know, just utter turmoil for the last five years. It's it's been a lot of fun. I've been able to meet some of the most amazing people, uh, and I've I've done very well while doing it. My belief is that I can do well while I'm doing good, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, don't uh, don't thank me too much. I am in this for me uh, and my own personal happiness first and foremost. Um, and like I said, if I can do something good for humanity at the same time, then I can sleep a little better at night. Hey man, that's capitalism. That's the world that we uh, actually. That's a system that produces the best for the most people. Um, people do what will benefit them, and I think that they're happy to do what will benefit others as long as it still benefits them. And I think that basic driving component of human reality is something that gets missed by you know the more you know big government socialist minded people. So you're among I think uh, very much friendly capitalist uh, minded individuals on the Survival Podcast. Well, if you like what I have to say and. Uh <clears throat> and you agree with any of it, go to tspcopper.com, pick up a, a roll or a few rolls of uh, some of our beautiful copper medallions. I think, Jack, uh, right around September 1st, you'll be looking into adding silver to the yeah. uh, the lineup on TSP Copper. That's the latest I got back from our tech team. So 
Okay, great. Again, if, great. You, if so I, I've been asked a lot about that. When is TSP Hopper going to sell silver? As soon as Rob says it's okay. <laughs> That's the answer I've been given. We're waiting for live pricing to start working on your site. As soon as that happens, then uh, then you can pick up some beautiful silver there as well. But again, if you if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, go to tspcopper.com and uh, and pick up a couple rolls of copper. It's an it's an easy, non-confrontational way of spreading the message as well. You know, you go out to a restaurant, you get the check, and you leave a couple bucks tip and, a, and an ounce of copper. Um, you know, it's it's an easy way to let people know what real money is, and I think the uh, the TSP uh, copper medallion is is a great way to spread spread the real truth about money. I think there's a lot of other really great ones there too. I mean, we've had a ton of support for the Second Amendment coins. That's good. Uh, people have bought the hell out of that one, and uh, you and I are working on eventually we're going to have some kind of a, a coin grouping or something where people can get five rolls of five different coins at a discount or something like and that's that. That's exactly well, right. Yeah, we'll I'll, I'll go mention that to David today. Hey, one more thing I want to mention, just because I, I think your group might uh, might care about this, but I took your recommendation and reached out to uh, your friends over at uh, Colorado Aquaponics. Yep. And we're, we're going to have a press release go out in the next week about a two-day training, uh, aquaponics training seminar on Pine Ridge up in South Dakota. And so a lot of oh, people wow. out there have been asking about the Pine Ridge Reservation. Who are these people that are behind the bank? Can I meet them? Can I go there? Uh, and the answer to that question is yes, you can, and, and you can meet these people. Um, and at the same time, you can attend one of the, the best training resources in the country for aquaponics. And so keep an eye on uh, on our website if you have any interest in doing that. The, the seminar is actually going to be free for the people of Pine Ridge. And if you're visiting, uh, there will be a price in ounces of silver. Um, but uh, but that'll be a great opportunity if you're looking for a road trip to get to wow. a beautiful part of the country that uh, um, that's going to be creating their own aquaponics commercial lab in the next uh, 16 months, 18 months. Um, that's the place to do it. So, again, keep- well, if there's any way I can be there, Rob, I'll try to be there for that. Well, let me give you an idea, possibly, of some <laughs> dates. Hold on one second. Let me look at this here. Um, take a look at October 13th, 14th, and see if that makes okay. sense. Um, but again, we'll have more information come out shortly. But I took your recommendation there, reached out to the great people over at uh, Colorado Aquaponics, and they're really excited about uh, positively impacting the lives of the Lakota Nation as well. So cool stuff is going on. A lot of irons in the fire. A little little nerve-wracking. Um, it's always hard to find good people. So if you're out there listening and, and you think that you might want to get involved with uh, the, the honest money and value-backed barter movement, get in touch with us. There, there's always um, some place that we could, we could use more help. Awesome, awesome stuff, Rob. Again, thank you for being on the show with us yet again. My pleasure, Jack. Thanks for having me. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirgo today along with Rob Gray, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
children just can't pay Cause nobody up there cares They're living 